do introductory remarks, see if other people are coming. They still be eating. Gentlemen here, we'll start very shortly. We just have an introductory pattern. I want you especially to pay attention to these large telescopes here. This is not to put across the idea that the wise men had this instrument or that instrument. <laughs> what instruments they had, we're not really sure. But it's a beautiful night out to look at the stars. And part of the attraction of Gurney's is that we have an astronomical center here. And available are some of the finest uh, telescopes on the market. The instrument over here, first of all, this one is the one you want to get started with in your hobby. Because when people use telescopes, they often see so many stars, they don't know which one they're looking at. <laughs> so with this one, you have a wide field, and you can go for a year or two exhausting that possibility. <laughs> With, of course, proper instruction and manuals and so on, and frequent trips during our astronomy sessions here, and uh, the astronomy week that we're planning to do at Gurney's. And then, for a little more serious viewing, the Celestron 90, and don't be fooled by how stubby it looks. A Celestron is a, what is known in the trade of Schmidt-Cassegrain reflector. That is to say that instead of the telescope being all in one straight set of optics, this is a folded telescope. The light comes in the front here, hits a mirror, comes back and hits another mirror here, and the eyepiece is in the back. This makes for much greater stability and actually it has a much longer focal length than that appears. After a few in-between sizes, you get up to the Celestron 11-inch diameter mirror, which uh, is not quite as portable as that, of course, and really is more suitable for a permanent installation in your own backyard. Or a friend of mine has one not quite this large. He has a Celestron 8, and he got so interested in Amateur astronomy, he built his own observatory with a fold-off roof and a telephone installed, and he's out there every clear night of the year, and is getting by on much less sleep than he ever did before, and has become a very serious amateur. So if you have some questions about viewing and what's visible out in the sky tonight, it's very clear out, and there are some very beautiful stars and constellations of the winter sky visible right now, some of which I'm going to refer to because some of the names of the stars in the sky in the winter are some of the oldest known constellations in recorded literature. The constellation Orion that is right outside our window here now is mentioned in the book of Job in the Bible. Uh, so is another star near the constellation Orion, um, Sirius, and some others. So if someone asked where did some of these stars get their names, they go back to Hebrew times, and even before that, where people don't really know where they were first named. And that, that is by way, really, of introduction to our topic this evening, which is the Star of Bethlehem. And the subtitle is, How Long After Christmas Did It Occur? And so the first thing I'd like to talk about this evening is, when was Christmas? Did you remember to turn it on? <laughs> okay. When was Christmas? Now, one would think that a date that really serves as the dividing point of our calendar, B.C. and A.D., would be rather firmly established. And that's the first thing we want to put down where did the idea of B.C. and A.D. really originate. Interestingly enough, it was not at the time when it switched from B.C. to A.D., but it didn't occur until about 600 years after that, when a fellow by the name of Dionysius Exiguus took it upon himself to change the calendar. In other words, up to that time, there was no generally agreed upon way in which to date things. Each country had their own dating system. 
And so Dionysius said what he'd like to do is to use the history of Rome and go from the date that he could determine as the beginning of the Roman Empire and then from that beginning of the Roman Empire establish the time when Christ was born and call that the year one. Now it's interesting, first of all, the mistake he made was that he didn't have a zero. People in 600 AD didn't have zeros. I mean, they mustn't have had deficit spending. I don't know why they didn't need a zero. But at that time, Roman numerals were involved. Now here we have the number 18, and here we have the number 29. Now you multiply those two. Imagine you're now in the third grade in a class in mathematics, 600 after the time of Christ, and you're supposed to multiply those two numbers. In all seriousness, this is one reason why the Roman Empire collapsed. There were other moral and other reasons, but one reason that the Roman Empire could not keep going was that they had no system of mathematics. They had no zero, for one thing. They had no decimal places and all this. And so the first mistake Dionysius Exiguus made was that between 1 BC and 1 AD, he had nothing. He went right from 1 BC to 1 AD. So right there, off the bat, he's one year off for the birth of Christ. Secondly, he went from the beginning of the Roman Empire and said that 753 after the time of the beginning was the time of the birth of Christ. And the reason he picked 753 is because the sources that he had available at his time gave that as the time from the beginning of the dating of the Julian calendar of Julius Caesar that Caesar Augustus lived, who is given in the Bible as the Caesar who reigned at the time of Christ. Well, interestingly enough, 753, after the time of the beginning of this era, the Caesar who is mentioned at the beginning for the birth of Christ was no longer uh, in existence. And more specifically, the man who is named Herod in the Bible account for the birth of Christ, King Herod, there were so many Herods, if you go into the encyclopedia and look up Herod, you have all kinds of them, and it's very difficult to establish which one was Herod the Great, because nobody called himself Herod the Little. <laughs> they were all Herod the Great, and this particular Herod the Great is so difficult to pin down that for a long time it was thought he never lived, that this was a myth, and there was no such thing as Herod the Great. And then archaeologists found that there really were uh, things that Herod the Great did that were excavated, but according to this reckoning, Herod the Great died in 748 by this system. So right there, there's a five-year gap between the time of Dionysius's uh, reckoning of the birth of Christ and the death of Herod, who is recorded in the Bible as having died shortly after the time of Christ. Now, if you take away the error he made by not using a zero, and the five-year error that we have since found to be the case for the death of Herod, the one gets subtracted from the other, and according to most scholars today, the birth of Christ took place 4 B.C. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting to say that Jesus was born four years before his birth. Now, that much by way of chronological and historical data. There is another person mentioned in the account in Luke in which it says that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to be enrolled or that the census should be taken and that this was done when Quirinius was governor of Syria. <clears throat> now, according to Roman records, Quirinius indeed was governor of Syria and ordered that such a census be taken, but according to this Dionysius A, D, and BC reckoning, which we still use today, we have to change this. This is since the sixth century, the way in which we arrive in 1983 for this year. 
by that wrong reckoning, and by that figuration, Quirinius was governor of Syria and made his census in the year 6 to 7 AD. So, how does that fit in with all BC? <laughs> that I did once before. The pointer just fell inside this case, and short of taking it apart, I'm not so sure are we going to get it out of there. Well, how can 4 BC be correct and 6 to 7 AD also be correct? That's a puzzle. We're not sure. There is one theory, and that is that Quirinius did his census of the land of Israel officially in 6 to 7 AD, but that before that time, he was also a ruler of the southern part of Palestine, and he did a practice one at that time. Either that or he got it started before he was governor of Syria, and what the Bible is saying should really be interpreted to mean, and this happened, the birth of Jesus happened, and was completed first when governor, when Quirinius was governor of Syria in 6 to 7 AD. There is no other, to my way of thinking, possible explanation. Either there was a uh, practice census in 4 BC, and then the official one in 6 to 7, or uh, one of the accounts is an error. And if you uh, take the Bible at face value, which is a very wise thing to do in this time of archaeological discoveries, because over and over again, accounts in the Bible have been established to be absolutely correct, even when previously it seemed there were dates and uh, errors in dates. Even the matter of Pontius Pilate, for example, who was not thought uh, some time ago even to have been in Palestine by some historians and that the Bible must be in error for that reason. It has since been found in archaeological digs that indeed it was exactly in that place at that time and therefore it turned out to be correct. So, we don't get much help from these two dates here because we now have anywhere from 4 BC to 6 to 7 AD for the wise men to come from the east. Now, that much for the year. Now the question arises, if we're going to pin down the star of Bethlehem and what it was, and in what part of history we should look for these events, we have to see if there are any clues in history or in the biblical account as to the time of year. And not just the time of year, but the month and the day, December 25th for Christmas. Where do we get that day? Well, if you go to Bethlehem, you'll find that the climate is such that shepherds can be out in the fields all the year round. There used to be a theory that when the shepherds were out in the field in their flocks, it must have been spring because in the winter it was so cold that they'd be in their corrals and there wouldn't be any shepherds out there. Well, it has since been established by shepherds in Bethlehem and some who have been on the lecture circuit and said that they know about shepherding because they've been over there with their sheep, it is possible to have it all year round. Obviously then, the shepherds with their flocks by night does not give us a clue as to the date of Christmas at all. It could have been any time of year. Nobody wrote down when it was that Mary was in Bethlehem and that Jesus was born on a specific date. You'd think that this important census would be recorded somewhere, but it's not. So we have no clue as to the time of year. Well, where then did December 25th come from? Well, there are two theories about that. December 25th is close to the time when the sun stops moving southward during the year and starts coming northward again. When the sun is as far north as it goes, we have summer. When it's as far south as it goes, it does not shine as long during the day, and it's cold, and we have winter. And the time when it turns around and stops and comes back north again is known as the winter solstice. That means the sun solstice standing still. So the winter solstice is on December 21st or 22nd, depending if it's a new year or not. 
We call it the beginning of winter. Some people wonder why isn't it the coldest day of the year? It's the beginning of winter, and the sun is the farthest away from us that it can get. And the reason is that the sun is indeed as far south, and the days are the shortest at that time, but the earth takes a long time to cool off. And the heat that has accumulated during the summer doesn't really escape into space until sometime in January. And then you have a trade-off between the sun coming back north again and the days being the shortest. So that's why January is our coldest month, even though December 21st is the winter solstice. Now, the nations of the world celebrated the winter solstice, and the Roman Empire was no exception. And so December 21st was a time of great celebration. Now, it also was the case that around December 25th, there was another celebration called the Saturnalia. The Saturnalia was, as you can tell, a festival connected with the god Saturn. Saturn is the god of harvest. And by the time December rolled around, the harvest had been gathered, the food had been stored, and the Romans had a one-week celebration with great uh, debauchery to celebrate something like Mardi Gras or some of the other Oktoberfests in Germany and so on, the Saturnalia Festival. Now, Christmas was not celebrated in the Christian church for hundreds of years after the time of Christ. There was no specific date set. The idea of observing a specific date as Christmas began in about 300 A.D. Now, 300 A.D. was a time of persecution, or a little bit before then already, it was very severe. And the Christians felt that they should celebrate the birth of Christ, no matter whether there were persecutions or not. But the question was how to do this without calling specific attention to the celebration. So it was agreed that a good time to celebrate safely was during a time of revelry when the Romans were already in uh, an uproar over celebrations and the Christians celebrating Christmas would not be particularly noticed. That is, in my view, the best reason why December 25th is Christmas. Because in 300 AD, the Christians, to avoid persecution, picked the Saturnalia where anything went and they wouldn't persecute them for having another specific festival has nothing to do with any known date of Christ's birth or the season of the year or, for that matter, for what year A.D. or B.C. it occurred. Now, that much by way of introduction. If someone has a question or a comment about that before we go on, because at this point I'm going to turn the lights off uh, and it won't be quite so easy to uh, ask questions at that time. Not quite yet, John. There's a little introduction there, but maybe someone has a comment about that. The date of Christmas, and according to best uh, scholarly authority, why December 25th is celebrated as the date. Because this is, of course, uh, primary to the question of how long after Christmas did the star of Bethlehem occur. And we're going to see now whether there is any way in which we can use astronomical literature to see uh, when that event occurred and indeed what that event was. Okay, well, uh, let me say first what I'm going to do with the slides before we get that far. Maybe I don't need to so much. It just uh, interferes a little. Let me make it clear right off the bat that there is only one source for the story of the Star of Bethlehem, and that is the book of Matthew. There is no other account of these people anywhere in history. There's no other historical writer, Josephus or any of the other uh, writers of antiquity who mention who these people were or what the event was. And so I'd like to read it to you in the translation of the American Bible Society, the Good News Bible, because it uses modern language and is accurately translated, I think, in this regard, by comparing it with uh, a transliteration from the Greek in preparation for this talk. I find that the Good News Bible of the American Bible Society is as accurate 
as any of the 75 translations in English that are available of the Bible at the present time. And here's the account. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. Soon afterward, some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east, and we have come to worship him. When, I'm going to make some comments about those verses in just a moment. I'd like to read the whole account first the way it is. When King Herod heard about this, he was very upset, and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? In the town of Bethlehem in Judea, they answered, for this is what the prophet wrote. Bethlehem, and it's, it's referring to the prophet in the Old Testament, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the leading cities of Judah, for from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. So Herod called the visitors from the east to a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Go and make a careful search for the child, and when you find him, let me know so that I too may go and worship him. And so they left, and on their way they saw the same star they had seen in the east. When they saw it, how happy they were, what joy was theirs. It went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. They went into the house, and when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they knelt down and worshipped him. They brought out their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and presented them to him. Then they returned to their country by another road, since God had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. Now, in telling you in a moment what the different theories of leading astronomers in the world are about the star of Bethlehem, I want to point out, as I have said, that this is the only account there is, and that there are certain aspects of this account that any astronomical theory about the star of Bethlehem must satisfy. Either that, or we call the whole thing a myth. Now, a scientist doesn't call things myths. A scientist reads an account and tries to explain it. Because if you say it's a myth, then you don't have anything to do. Then what are you going to say? It didn't happen, so what are you doing here in the laboratory? You've got to believe to start out with if you're going to investigate a phenomenon. If a man comes in and he's paying you 100000 a year to be a scientist and he comes in with a problem, you don't tell him it's a myth because then you don't have a job anymore. So when you go to an astronomer and say, what was the star of Bethlehem, he's going to take this account and try to explain it. And that's exactly what I've looked up in all the possible literature I can find worldwide to see what astronomers say. And the interesting thing is, in doing the research for this talk, I find that pretty soon astronomers are quoting each other. And when that happens, you know that you've reached the end of your library research. Because if one guy is quoting the other one, then obviously neither one of the two has any further information. Now, Number one, the star is called a star. Now, what's the big deal? It's not called a planet. Now, Luke and Walter refers to stars in his account of the birth of Christ, and Matthew both lived at a time when people knew very well what a planet was. Because the word planet is a Greek word, and the New Testament is written in Greek. A planet is a Greek word meaning wanderer. It doesn't stay put. It wanders around in the sky. They did not call it a planet. They called it a star. That's number one. Well, the second thing is that they said that the star appeared in the eastern sky. It's a wrong translation from the Greek to say that the star merely appeared in an eastern country. It doesn't say that in Greek. It says the star appeared in the eastern part of the sky. It says that the people who came were people who studied the stars 
in the eastern country. So they were from the east, but they told Herod they saw the star in the eastern sky. Not in their country, but in the eastern part of the heavens. That's the next thing. Third thing is that the star seemingly did not shine continually. It shone for a time, and then when they were in Jerusalem and had meetings with Herod and whatnot, it doesn't say anything about the star. It doesn't say they went out and looked at it. They had conferences, and we don't know how long these went on. And then when they were all done with that, they went out, and there was the star. So it appeared, it disappeared, it appeared again, it moved, it says it moved, and stopped over a house. <laughs> Let's bear these in mind as we come up with the theories. I have all the theories illustrated. Now it must be remembered that in trying to pin down where these guys were from, that we have a pretty good reason for believing that they were from Babylonia. Because Babylonia was widely known at the time of Christ for its knowledge of the sky. In fact, the signs of the zodiac in the funny papers every day are from Babylonian arrangements of the zodiac. The word, the word zodiac means zoo. And as an astronomer, of course, I think astrology is total, unadulterated, bunk and idolatry. It is unscientific, there's nothing to it. It's in the funny papers. I asked, I had an all-day debate with an astrologer once at an inn where a lot of people were invited to attend. And I said, do you mean to say that you take these horoscopes seriously? And she said, well, you notice they're on the comic page. Furthermore, I can prove to you as an astronomer that none of the signs in the newspaper are correct. If you think you're an Aries, you're not because the sign of Aries was set up so long ago that during the time when they were set up and up to now, the entire Earth has shifted through precessional motion and all of us are a whole month off what it says in the newspaper. <laughs> I always explain that the first day in my astronomy classes in college and I give the sheets out to see, tell the students this is what you really are and this is what the newspaper says. And you know what the result is? I'll go back now and read the other sign <laughs> instead of getting convinced that the whole thing is just the one you make escape. Well, anyway, it is wrong to call the wise men astrologers because the word astrologer carries with it all kinds of connotations of uh, fakery and of believing in things that are not really true, and that's not what they were. You notice that this translation correctly says they were men from the East who studied the stars. Now, I also know from learning about the lives of great astronomers of the past that men like Kepler, who was probably the greatest astronomer who ever lived, made a good living being an astrologer. You don't make a very good living even today being an astronomer. Now, whether he really believed what he was horoscoping for the king, I don't know. But the king paid him good money to cast his horoscope. Napoleon was probably defeated in battle because his astrologer told him to go to war at Waterloo. <laughs> that was not a very good forecast. There is even reason to believe that Hitler had an astrologer who was a British spy. <laughs> that we got a guy in there who told Hitler when to attack. So if you want to rule the world, get somebody with great armies to believe in your horoscopes, and you've got it made. <laughs> you may even be familiar with the Thirty Years' War. I remember in my German classes in college, I had to read the story of Wallenstein, who was a great general, and he carried his astrologer with him in battle. Well, that's probably the best place to take him. Anyway, they were not astrologers in the sense that they were hoodwinking people. They studied the stars and the positions of the stars, and they named a lot of them. They named the science of the constellations that we still use today, and they did not come to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem because of somebody's horoscope. Well, that's all we know about this, the astronomers from the East. They're called magi. The word magi is the same word that we use for magic. 
Well, it doesn't mean that they were magicians. It means they were wise people. If you look up the word magi in the Bible, you will notice that in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel is called a magi. Daniel was chosen by his conquerors in Babylon because he was one of the smartest people there. And so he became chief of the Magi of Babylon. And I personally feel there is a connection between Daniel in Babylon and the coming of the wise men. I think that when Daniel was in captivity in Babylonia, he taught the people of his time, the Magi under him, about Hebrew folklore. And he taught them the Old Testament. And he told them about the coming of a Messiah. And there are a lot of references in the Old Testament that we'll get to in a minute that tell where in the heavens and where in the world the Messiah uh, might be announced and be born. If you follow the line of thinking of that, that Daniel was the chief of the Magi. One thing is definitely true, and that is that nowhere in the account I just read does it say there were three wise men. The tradition of three wise men is based only on the idea that they gave three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Their names are not given. One theory, which I think is much more plausible, is that the wise men had hundreds of people because they had to cross the desert and they needed a small army to protect them from the robbers in the desert. Three people would not endure in the desert from Babylonia to Jerusalem. They had a large collection of people with them to protect them and to carry what they believed was their uh, rightful gifts to this newborn king. If you go to Cologne, Germany, and go into the cathedral in Cologne, the beautiful two-domed cathedral there, and you'll see this in just a minute, the wise men are believed to be in three caskets there on the altar, because the city of Cologne, Germany, was built on the belief that the bones of the wise men were there, and they should honor these by erecting a cathedral and a city. And the flag of Cologne, Germany, has three crowns on it. Those three crowns represent the wise men. So that's the closest you'll get to the wise men when I'll show you their caskets. And that is, of course, the tradition of Cologne, Germany. And from that, I'm told that the three wise men, the motif of the star and the wise men, is the most familiar single motif on Christmas cards. Okay, now we're ready, finally, John, to see some of the pictures. Now, does the planetary conjunction theory have any more going for it than the others? May I ask you a question? Yes. Not about the theory, but what's the difference between a meteor and a comet? A meteor is a flash in the sky that lasts for a few seconds. It's a piece of debris that has uh, lit up in the sky from the heat and friction of the atmosphere, and it's just uh, maybe the size of a grain of sand. I'm saying as far as where it comes from, meteor, it breaks off from something else. Right? There is a connection between the two, we believe, and that is that comets disintegrate and produce the meteors. If we travel, if the Earth moves through a part of the sky where a comet has occurred, we get meteor showers. We see hundreds and sometimes thousands of them, and it is believed that the debris of the comet is responsible for the meteor. Now, if the meteor falls on the Earth, and we can study it, we have some clue as to the makeup of the universe, because uh, material comes in here and lands, has not been eroded and changed by the atmosphere, and so meteor collections are important for that reason, like the very large one at Hayden Planetarium weighs 34 tons but most of them are the grain of sand size and explode and they're gone. Whereas a comet is millions of miles away. The United States has decided because of budgetary cuts not to send any ships up to study Comet Halley, but Russia and Japan and several European nations are sending uh, rockets up there in time to intercept Halley's Comet 1985-86 and maybe bring a piece home. Yes? Who's sponsoring Giotto then? I was trying to find out before I left which country it is. I think it's Japan. I'm not positive. I was trying to find it quickly, but I just heard a lecture on it recently, and I forget which country it was. But I do remember that the reason they're calling it Giotto is because of the artistic mm -hmm. uh, connection with the star of Yes. Yes, I have two questions, but I think you just answered one. On the, 
Yes, um, you notice that the first picture, 1910, uh, was like April 26th, um, and the total amount of time it was visible was only like six weeks. Now, to show how technology has advanced, we just spotted Halley's Comet about two months ago, which is 1983, four, five, three years ahead of time, not six weeks. It was a marvel of uh, technology at Mount Palomar months ago and they spotted it with electronic uh, devices on the telescope there. And most astronomers confirmed that yes, it uh, is Halley's Comet and it has now already been uh, orbited, that is, we know exactly when it will reach the vicinity of the Earth and it's only a few days off the time of the predicted So it will be closest to the Earth in January of 1986, three years from now. Yes. The planets? No, those are from the Earth. None of the, I've had these slides longer than the ships that went up. If I show you some of the more recent ones, they're fantastic. You've seen them through the rings and so on. These are all taken from the Earth, but not even with a very large telescope. In fact, it's not too different from what you see through these. Uh, it takes a little patience uh, to take a picture like that. I didn't take those. Uh, they're available from planetariums, but that was not an unusual photograph, though. So they were from Earth. Any other questions? Yes. I've heard that Halley would be difficult, if not impossible, to see from this part of the Earth. Is that true? Uh, it will not be as good. Uh, as it was in 1910, according to predictions, both because of the time in which it will be visible in the northern hemisphere and the signs of the phases of the moon and so on, it's correct. Um, also, it should not be imagined that Halley is so bright that you can see it in the daytime. Halley was not visible in the daytime in 1910, and it will not be visible in the daytime this time. In fact, it has already been predicted that it won't be as bright this time around as it was in 1910. There have been comets that were visible in the daytime more recently. In 1975, there was one you can see in the daytime. Um, Would it not be as great because of what we've done to the atmosphere? Well, I don't believe, no. I don't think it's pollution of the atmosphere. It's just that Halley is not famous because of its brightness, but because it was the first comet to be studied as a repeating comet. Halley never saw Halley's comet. Comets are named after the person who discovers them, except for Halley's Comet. And you know, as I've been saying Halley, because an astronomer I talked to recently went to the London Telephone Directory and called all the people that were named the same as Halley to see how they pronounced their name. Because we don't know how Mr. Edmund Halley said it at that time. And I have very interesting news for you. It could have been Halley, <laughs> not Halley, Haley, but Halley. <laughs> so most astronomers say Halley because there's a double L in it. With one L, it's like Haley Mills. Well, anyway, Halley was a good friend of Isaac Newton, and he noticed in history that there seemed to be a bright comet every so often. And he wondered, could it be the same one? Nobody ever thought of that. So he looked and noticed, well, a lot of them are like 75 years apart. So he predicted that it would be seen again at a certain time. Well, he died first, and then indeed, to add intrigue to our lecture this evening, Halley's Comet was spotted for the first time that it was called Halley's Comet on Christmas Eve. And isn't it that Mark Twain was born and died? Yes, Mark Twain was born during one year Halley's Comet appeared and died during the next time it appeared. So um, Halley's Comet comes back again about every lifetime, say, 75 years. So it's that does not make it an unusual comet. Most comets have much longer periods, 30,000 years to come back. That way you don't have to worry if you predicted it right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, about 35 or 37 years ago, I witnessed, I never forget, Aurora Borealis. Was about 60 or 17. Yes. yes, I, yes, I was going to. I was for hours. Yeah. I laid down the schoolyard. Okay. Oh boy, 
I remember laying flat on my back, with some friends of mine, because I never seen anything quite like it. It was frightening, because not knowing anything about it. Right. And I seen flashes in that sky, and I forget. How long does something like that Well, I'm glad you asked it, because I deleted that part from my lecture. There's also a theory of an aurora borealis, but I thought this was getting a little too far afield for the star Bethlehem, but since you brought it up, it's a very interesting phenomenon indeed. You see it, you look again. Oh, absolutely. And in this part of the world, if there were not as many lights and pollution of light in this area, you would see an aurora here in New York about two nights a year. As you go farther north, it gets more frequent, and there are certain parts of the Earth where you see them everywhere, in Norway, in other places. And the present explanation of the aurora is that the material of the sun that is constantly being ejected, not the sunlight, that makes the comet's tail, sunlight pushes it out. But the material that is thrown out of the sun, which takes about a day to get here, interacts with our magnetic field, the Earth, and like the field around the bar magnet, is drawn into the magnetic poles in the north and south, aurora borealis, aurora australis on the other side. And to check that theory out, a few years ago, the United States Space Agency sent a rocket up and created an artificial one. They we sent a rocket up and ejected, I don't know how many pounds of powdered copper and a little radioactivity in the tube. And a few hours later, a northern light display occurred exactly in Berkeley, which kind of verifies that theory that it's ionized interactions with our upper atmosphere. The aurora occur about 90 miles up which is about the same altitude where meteors light up and where spaceships are glowing when they come back. So the aurora can be very exciting indeed. I remember taking an astronomy class one year to Jones Beach, which is a nice place to observe for two reasons. It's nice and dark, and there's an observatory out there. Every third Sunday of every month, go down to Jones Beach and make a right, and go as far as you can go to West End Beach number two, Big one, uh, a little wider than this even, 15-inch undercover there. There's an astronomy lecture there. Amateur astronomers meet there. And just when it was over, we got the bus to go back, and the sky lit up red. Now, a red aurora is very rare. They occur in Alaska and some other places because it's hydrogen, in fact. Most aurora, maybe you remember the one you saw, that wore green and blue. Blue, blue, yes. and uh, I guess silver white, you know, bluish yeah. white. And they, and they have various shapes. Uh, they'll be like curtains and draperies moving, and sometimes like a crown bursting if you're right under it. And they go on for hours and change shape. And they're very hard to photograph. Very hard to photograph. We've tried. And he said he's seen it. The next day, it showed a picture of the yeah. Ohio State Building and some of the flashes. Lit up around. The next day. In the 1940s, I got the exact here. Not knowing what it was, it was scared. Because we were young boys. That's for sure. Remarkable. Any other comments? Because I'm not going to come to the answer to the question of tonight's lecture. Because if everybody else has a theory, I can have a theory also. In fact, uh, every scientist likes to have a theory as well. There are probably as many theories on certain questions as there are scientists. Well, I've shown you all the possible theories that I've run across, and there's something wrong with all of them. I mean, it just simply doesn't make sense that any one of these objects, and where you always get hung up, is how could it take them out of Jerusalem and stop over a house? <laughs> I mean, you either say it didn't happen, and then, of course, you have the nagging feeling what it did. <laughs> or you're just too dumb to understand it. Well, let's answer the question first of whether it occurred on Christmas Eve. The answer is, it could have. When I first suggested this lecture, John, I said, how long after Christmas was it? And now I've come to the conclusion that it could have been all the way from Christmas, well, maybe the next morning, <laughs> to two years later, at the outside. 
Why two years later? Because in the next chapter of Matthew, it says that Herod got very upset when he found out that the wise men did not come back to Jerusalem to tell him where they found Christ. Because he was interested in only one thing, and that's getting rid of him. It says when Herod heard about the star and the wise men, he got all upset. And then all Jerusalem got upset. Well, the reason all Jerusalem got upset is because Herod was upset. They didn't know what he's going to do next, what kind of a bloodbath is this going to be now. So they were all upset, what is he going to do? Well, he asked them, when did the star first appear? And it doesn't say what they told him, but it says that later he went and had all the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem murdered. Why two years and younger? One possibility is that the wise men had told him that they first saw the star two years before. Either it took them two years to make up their minds, it took them two years to get there, or some other such reason. But if they had told him two years, then he wanted to be sure he included everybody. Either that, or he said, well, I'm going to play it safe. And if they're wrong by two years, I'll do it. <laughs> you don't know. So, yeah. That, that's a hard thing to understand, why that should, why that had to happen, why that kind of thing. So, two years is at the outside. If they saw it two years before the birth of Christ, and it took them a long time to get to Jerusalem, and if the star appeared long enough, stable to the house. Well, obviously, Joseph would not want Mary and the child to stay in a stable. So we made arrangements to stay in a house. Here's the next day. What is most unusual to me of the entire story is that these wise men who were so well educated in the stars of Babylon and in talking to Herod and obviously were uh, considered by Herod to be important enough people should go to Bethlehem and to a place that was certainly not pretentious compared to the palace in Jerusalem, and go to this house and unquestionably say, this is what we came for. There's the child, here are our gifts. And that's the key to my own theory. I believe that the Star of Bethlehem, which it doesn't say anybody else saw, it doesn't say Herod saw it, or Joseph, or Mary, or anybody, was an appearance to the wise men alone. And these things are not uncommon in the Bible, certainly, and in other historical records either, that a person did something because of an appearance, a dream, a vision, a message to just them. Think of Joan of Arc. She led France for a time because of voices that only she heard, right? and many other things which are way beyond the testable answers of science. Now, as some of you know, I have gone to many countries and interviewed leading scientists around the world on the relationship between science and religion. I have a book here for those of you who'd like to look at it. And what they all told me in all these countries was that there is a point beyond which science cannot go. And that is not to be interpreted, the Nobel Prize winners told me, that they are not true. It only means that you cannot answer them in a science laboratory. And one astronomer after the other, I read for this Star Bethlehem lecture said, this is as far as astronomy can go. And many of them said very precisely, this is not to say that the account in Matthew is not true. It merely means that we cannot answer it. And so to say we don't know how a light can stop over a house does not mean that the light did not stop over a house. Because the fact that they got into that house and left their treasures there convinced them absolutely they were in the right house. Now if you saw a comet over there and you said, well, wait a minute. Maybe the tail isn't pointing at this place because there's not much in here. <laughs> they were absolutely convinced. They were not disappointed. They didn't come to give gifts in order to help anybody. 
there's a theory that, well, the gold they left there was so that uh, Mary Joseph, the Christ child, could flee into Egypt and uh, buy a house later on. That may be true, but that's not why the wise men came. They came because they knew that there was going to be a king, a royal personage born in that land. And they went to the place where they should have known about it, which was in Jerusalem. And sure enough, when they went to Jerusalem and asked the wise men of the West where this Savior would be born, they knew it, where he would be born. Matthew is sometimes accused by people who do not believe in the Bible as making this story up and of saying that there is this prophecy and that prophecy in the Old Testament that is here being fulfilled. Matthew makes it very clear that he didn't make the prophecy and he didn't pick the place in the Old Testament where the prophecy was made, but the wise men of the Jewish nation answered Herod and said, we know where the Savior will be born, in Bethlehem. Why didn't those people get up and go to Bethlehem? Why did only the wise men go? That's incomprehensible to me. It is to me an indication of how a person can close his mind to an obvious truth if you don't want to believe it. Here it says Herod gathered all the scribes and all the wise men together and said, tell me, where is this thing happening? And they told them correctly from the scriptures where it would happen and they all sat home. Yes. First of all, if the wise men were indeed Jewish and the Herod was out to kill Jewish king, why would they tell him? And secondly, with your understanding of people's belief systems, how can you be, how can you malign astrology the way you do? Well, there are several the questions. You just named. Now, several questions you answered there. First of all, uh, you said that the wise men were Jewish. You said they were Jewish wise men. No, 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 the wise men of the West were Jewish. Herod's wise men. No, the wise men were not Jewish. So they didn't No, the wise men were from the East, and they came to the wise men of the West. And Herod called the Western wise men together and said, Why did they kill Jesus Why didn't who? The three, if they were Herod's people. The wise men of the West did not go to Bethlehem. I'm calling them wise men oh, of the West. Okay. Herod's advisors found the place in the Old Testament where it said where Jesus would be born. And they did not go there. Now maybe they were scared to death. Maybe they thought if they'd go, but Herod wanted to know. Herod said, come back and tell me so I can go and worship you because it's a dirty lie. He wanted to go and kill him. And they didn't know that. They were going to come back. So they didn't come back. Now, your second question, I'm not sure I quite understand about astrology. You were saying something to take on people's belief systems, people's individuals' visions, uh, people's association to whatever, the cosmology, they're unexplainable. Yes. And yet, you made quite a lengthy statement about astrology being having no basis and, and no use. You call it buff. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I do not know a single astronomer on Earth who puts any credence in astrology. I would be very happy to know the person's name and contact them. Because, now I must distinguish, of course, between two kinds of astrology. I understand. And I was going to say that okay. next. There are people. Horoscopes are not astrology, they're a column. It's a column page. Right. Astrology, now of course, here is one other reason why it cannot be classified as a science. There is no single school of astrology. When I debated the head of the Long Island Astrological Association at the Pickwick Motor, <laughs> that, was some, that was some experience because the crowd in there was 99% against me. They wouldn't have come on a Saturday to listen to an astronomy lecture. They could have gone to school somewhere and heard it. But they wanted to hear an astronomy get his, astronomy get his, come up with it. Well, 
unfortunately, in a divine revelation, I think, and from some background experience in debating in college, I found out that the way to win a debate is not to recite facts. Right. You don't win debates with facts. You win debates by confusing the enemy. And so one of the first things I did was to say, now, whatever the person's name was, which school of astrology do you represent? And the audience was thrown into confusion. They said, what, there are several schools of astrology? And I said, yes, and let me name a few. And pretty soon we had an argument going between the school of Henry Richter and the school of somebody else, and Gene Dixon and everybody, they're all different. That does not take place in a science. If you go to a science convention, which I'm going to do later this month in the Hilton Hotel of physicists. It's a different ballgame. There are certain ground rules they agree on. Well, we have a legitimate difference of opinion there. I also found out another thing, as I told you before. If a person wants to believe something, you believe it, and it's not a scientific matter. No scientist on Earth believes He's a legitimate scientist in any theory. That's the first thing I've got to get out of my students' heads, that theories are for believing. I do not believe in the theory of gravity. I do not believe in the theory of evolution. The people who made them up don't believe in it. Theories are for studying and for challenging the mind. And if a person wants to believe something, that is a value system, as you say. You believe in motherhood, you believe in things that are beyond the scope of science. And that is why I believe if a person wants to believe in astrology, that's that person's privilege and that therefore belongs in the field of religion. Astrology is a religion because it cannot be proved scientifically. If I want to believe in Zoroastrianism, or in astrology, or in Scientology, or in Buddhism, I have a perfect right to believe that or in secular humanism or in any value system. But one must not call any of those science. But something not being a science is not there for me to Oh, no. It does. I'll be satisfied with it not being a science. Right. It's a belief system. Astrology is a belief system. That's correct. But I'll tell you this. That's a compromise. Every semester, next Tuesday, I start my next semester. Every semester, I'll have students who on the first day tell me how glad they are to be in this astrology course. <laughs> now, the reason those students are taking that course in the first place is to satisfy their science requirements. They, they say, my dear sir or madam, you're not in the right course. And I've had students say, well, I want to stay anyway because I want to show you that astrology has a scientific basis. So they do term papers on it. Very good, I have a lot of them. And one of them, and I don't grade them half because I think they're wrong. I grade them on the merits of how they're written. And this one girl I had in class, I'll never forget this, deeply religious girl, who says her belief in astrology does not conflict with her belief as a member of a certain denomination. I said, I find it hard to believe. How can you trust in God and in the stars at the same time? Well, she told me that the reason for studying astrology is to see what predisposition the stars have given you so that you can then lead a more intelligent life. Just like if you know you have certain genes in your body, you know how to deal with them in certain personality. Well, that, uh, there is not much you can do with that because we don't yet know whether any of the positions of any of the planets or stars have magnetic fields or whatever that might influence the water in my inner ear or something like that. I don't know. We always have to leave an open mind and say, we don't know. So I know that in certain hospitals, when it's a full moon, even when there are no windows, the patients become restless. Does that mean that the moon is pulling through the walls there? I don't know. But it's a belief system, right? A person who pursues a certain theory may have a, may have a conviction, almost religious one, that he's got the right answer to a scientific question and pursue his research. So I stand corrected to some extent there that maybe I got a little carried away in saying that, uh, almost saying we shouldn't bother with it. I, I 
I don't have the right to say that to another person, what you should bother with, what you should believe, what you should not, be under the illusion that it has, in any scientific community I'm aware of, uh, a scientific basis. In fact, there's an organization of scientists that puts out a magazine against astrology. And I know the astronomers who are in it. Abel, uh, some of these others. Uh, I forget the name of the magazine now, but it's a monthly, and it isn't only on astrology. It's on some other things that they consider pseudosciences and they consider them dangerous. Now, that's pretty strong. That's a little strong, uh, but they just feel frustrated that people don't believe what they say. Well, the time is moving on. I just want to uh, wrap it up again and say that I think that with the known facts at the present time, the star of Bethlehem, number one, cannot be pinpointed to a specific date beyond the two-year limit, and number two, cannot be pinpointed to a specific astronomical event. The planetarium is not the same. I know the show very well here uh, in Centerport, Vanderbilt Planetarium. I know the show that is written. I have the scripts for some of these shows and other planetariums, and they like, in order to show off the instrument they possess of how the planets can conjoin for the star of Bethlehem. I think that is stopping short of the right answer. I think the star of Bethlehem was a miraculous event, and I think that the account of Herod and his wise men uh, giving him the instructions points clearly to the fact that the wise men recognized that a savior was born in Bethlehem and they were thereby setting an example for people like some bumper stickers I see that say wise men still follow Christ. That's a rather modern conclusion from the talk on the line of Star Bethlehem. Now, if somebody is interested, as some people mentioned before, uh, this goes a little farther afield. I have some copies of the book here of the interviews of scientists around the world. I also have a little announcement here of our next expedition for a solar eclipse in Java this next summer, if you would like to become hooked on eclipses. And I would be very happy if some of you would stop up here so I can talk to you about the merits of our journey in Celestron Telescope
to Stony Brook from an observatory in the southwest where Stony Brook has been running an observatory. Have you had an astronomy course yet? Take one soon. I know I am going to look into a poem before I. I, I hear it I have very often. That's correct. Yes. It's true. And that certainly is a clear example of something moving and stopping back and forward again. Well, okay, but I will look. I have people currently at both schools. And really can't go out. And the study of all the conjunctions between those states was made by a man on the staff of, of Sky and Telescope.